There really is a lion outside these doors. The whole world is a giant lion's den, and if you're being honest and introspective enough, you carry on your back now the spiritual scars that it has laid upon you. 1 Peter 5 tells us that the devil is like a prowling lion who seeks those that he can devour. The New Testament passage will be helpful to keep in mind as we consider Daniel's experience in the lion's den. So this morning we're considering the famous text in which the prophet Daniel is thrown into a lion's den and he survives. It's a spoiler alert, but I'll let you know from the get-go, he survives this encounter. So this morning we're going to consider this long, dark night which Daniel's cast in the midst of beasts that were hungry for his flesh and yet he prevails. With that said, have you ever spent time in a lion's den? Well, based on the fact that you're still here, I'm going to presume the answer is no, at least with regards to an actual lion's den. However, in another sense, you could say that your entire life has been spent in a lion's den. In one sense, I hope and trust and pray that you've never been in an actual den with actual lions surrounding you. I trust that's never happened. I hope it never happens in the time yet to come. And yet, your entire life from birth to now has been spent, at least figuratively, in a lion's den. Now, what do I mean by that? First Peter, First Peter 5.8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In at least one sense, in at least one crucial sense, your entire life to date has been spent in the lion's den, whether you knew it or not. It has been so. You've been in a place with a spiritual enemy that would destroy you in a moment if he could. Scripture implies that the entire world is it's fallen, flawed, spiritual lion and more prowl, seeking your destruction. There's more than enough lions. It could be a euphemism for a lot of things. There's more than enough lions outside these doors to consume you a hundred times over. And yet, this morning, you're still here. Now, what your survival suggests is one of two things. It suggests that either, A, all the lions I'm talking about, that doesn't really exist. That's just useless metaphor. That has no real application. So either your survival suggests the lions don't really exist, you've been safe all along, or it suggests this, that you've been protected, that you have been protected and able to stand every step of the way. Do you believe the God of Scripture when he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion outside these doors? He seeks your destruction. He seeks to devour you. Do you believe him when he says that? And then if so, how have you made it so far? You've made it because you've been protected. You've made it because you've had someone at your side. You've made it because there is an intercessor in Zion. There is one who has looked after you, body and soul. Some believe that. Some don't. Some believe that there is a, a devil, a lion, so to speak. Some would even agree so far that it's a lion's den out there and the like. But you know what some do? Remember the analogy I've used in different cases? When we talk about you and I as, as, a, as sheep, if we have the good shepherd, we're sheep. Well, sometimes what we tend to do is we think that we're some sort of special sheep. We're powerful sheep. We're mighty sheep. We're commando sheep. We're ninja sheep. And we, on the basis of our own strength and our own virtue, can march into the lion's den and defend and protect ourselves. Is that the way it works? No. Absolutely, absolutely not. If, if you put a, a real man in a real cage with a real lion, I'm betting on the lion. That's the way it's, that's the way it's going to work. That's the way that's, that's going to turn out. First Peter says there really is a lion out there. And worse, the devil is far worse than a lion. That's a picture of something that's far more violent, far, far more aggressive, far more dangerous. And he seeks those that he can devour. And were it not for the grace of God, you and I, we would have been devoured long ago. Long ago. There really are jaws and claws outside these doors, whether we acknowledge them or not, that seek our destruction, that have us in their sights. You know, Jesus, he once told Peter that. He once told Peter. Remember, I think it's in Luke 22. 
He looks at Peter, and Peter at times felt good about himself. He felt strong in who he was and the like. Well, Jesus said, Peter, 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 come here. Come here, come here. He says, you should know something. The devil's asked. Asked if he could have you. He's asked if he could have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Because it would be that easy to him. It would be that easy for him. The lion, so to speak, is licking his chops for a, a Peter sandwich, is what Christ portrayed to him. But Jesus tells him this. He says, you know why it hasn't happened? Because I've been there for you. I've been praying for you that your strength would not fail. I've been interceding for you. Apart from intercession, be it in an actual lion's den, be it in lion's den outside these doors, be it in the cancer ward, be it in the hospital, be it anywhere. Apart from intercession, we would have no hope. Apart from God's protection and intervention, it would be game over for us. If you've been paying attention to the whole book of Daniel so far, I hope you have, but that's been the story. God's protection. God's intervention in the midst of a giant lion's den called Babylon. God's people were taken away, speared away, brought into exile into a foreign land, brought into the very teeth of the enemy. And there they were to live for decades. And time and time again, even while they were in the very lion's den of Babylon, God preserved them, protected them. He had promised them that I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, no matter how dark things get outside these doors. No matter how many dangers arise right in front of your eyes, no matter how sharp their teeth may be, I am with you. I am with you. The story of the book of Daniel. All right, if you would, let's look at verses 1 through 5. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. I'll stop there for a moment. Some commentators believe that Darius is actually Cyrus because Darius was a name, a common name that sometimes just meant king or ruler or what have you. So some people believe that it's one and the same with Cyrus. I'm not persuaded that that's the case, but at least I want to share that observation with you. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors, I know the ESV uses president, uh, New King James uses governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. And so the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none. They could find no charge nor fault because he was Faithful. There was no error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against Daniel unless unless we find it concerning the law of his God. All right. In last week's study, we considered the fall of Belshazzar. We considered the fall of Babylon. And remember, for as great and mighty as Babylon was, for the strength and the power and the prowess and the successes and all this, how many nights did it take for Babylon to fall? Yeah, one. Just a single night. Not a spear was thrown in defense because the, the Persians uh, snuck in under the walls, so to speak. Babylon was magnificent. It was impressive. Remember the statue of gold and the vision that uh, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? Babylon was the head. It was the golden head. It was majestic. It was magnificent. But it all came crashing down overnight to the armies of Cyrus, king of the Medes and the Persians. So as chapter 6 begins, we're seeing the formation of a new government. A new government, a new bureaucracy. Now, there's an old uh, civic reference. I think it actually comes from a song lyric, but there's an old civic reference that goes something like this. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Meet the new boss, the same as the old boss. What that implies is that even in a change of leadership, sometimes things don't change at all. Sometimes a leader will change and, and nothing else really does. Nothing at least that means much to the common man. Well, to the Jewish exiles, that was the case. If you're a Jewish exile, 
you were in an unadvantageous position no matter what happened. If you have the Babylonian king, well, great, you're still in exile. If it's a Persian king, same difference. You're still in exile. You're still away from your home. So not a whole lot changed. They, they still engendered forced servitude in this pagan idolatrous culture where your God was not widely proclaimed or even known. Not much had changed when Darius came to power. No matter who was in charge, they were still living in exile. With that said, there was at least one one significant benefit, one significant change, and that is that King Darius, when he came in, the Medes and Persians were pretty good administrators. They had studied the Babylonians to kind of see what lessons they could learn in terms of how to run an empire so vast. And one of the things that they understood intuitively was to raise up the indigenous leaders to take on uh, significant roles rather than just bringing people from afar and putting them over the local communities. They looked to raise up folks. So Darius, that's what he did. It's what we see in the first couple verses. Darius said, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to have 120 leaders. We'll call them these satraps. We're going to have 120 leaders. And among those 120 or above those, we're going to have three governors, three governors. Now, Daniel became one of those men because Daniel was an awesome stand-up guy. Daniel, everyone knew about Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had loved Daniel. The, the stories of Daniel's integrity, his honesty, his virtue, and so forth had gone before him. Darius found him to be very reliable, and so he put him in charge. And then Darius thought to himself, you know, this guy is so good, he's so honest and true, I'm going to put him in charge of the other governors. I'm going to make him the second really only, only to me. Now, as you might imagine, that brought about a certain amount of jealousy from the other guys. Everyone else who was jockeying for power at this time and the new government, the new bureaucracy, they said, oh, no, 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 not, not, not Daniel. So they were jockeying for favor and they were looking for some way to, to remove him from the scene. And in part, I think, because they knew they didn't stand a chance to have the king's ear once Daniel had. So they tried to find, they tried to find flaws. Well, in the case of Daniel, there, there was none. You know, some of the guys in Scripture... They had flaws. Even some of the wonderful guys, like David and Moses, had flaws that, that were known of and became stumbling blocks at different times. Now, Daniel, undoubtedly, he had flaws. This is a sinful man, and yet he's one of the few guys who really we don't see any record of what those sins were. He was about as blameless a guy as you're going to get. So blameless that even his enemies, who had every incentive to find something wrong, couldn't. And so they said, you know what? Our only recourse... We can't find anything wrong with him. I mean, this guy's a saint, but he serves the God of his people. He serves Jehovah. They have laws. They have rules. They've got ways they do things. We know Daniel. He does things different than we do them here. What if? What if we set in motion a chain of events by which the laws of his God and his fealty, his obedience to them, become his stumbling block before Darius? And you can see them twirling their villainous mustaches as they thought this plan through, as they thought, aha, we've got him. And so they're going to go to, to Darius with this idea, with this proposal. But look at how they're going to phrase it. Okay, let's look at verses 6 through 9. So the governors and the satraps thronged before the king. You get this picture of this giant bunch of guys. They walk into the courtroom and they say this to him. King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom... The administrators, the satraps, counselors, and advisors have consulted together. That was a lie right there. Daniel was one of the leaders, right? He wasn't consulted. But in order to make the case to Darius, they say, we're all on board. Everyone to a man is on board. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, counselors, and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, 
And you can see Darius, his, his eyes perked up. He's like, ooh, yeah, he's excited about this premise. Anyone who petitions any god or man for 30 days except for you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing so they cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which do not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. You know, the easiest way, the easiest way to, to manipulate someone is to cater to their ego. See, a man's ego it can be inflated far greater than even his reason. A man's ego can be inflated to superhuman size, far above common sense, far above his reason. This is a perfect example of just that. These guys come to him and they say, for 30 days, no God matters. All the other gods, are ears and mouths are silent. For 30 days, everyone's got to come to you. Now, this guy, irregardless how bad his theology may have been, on some level, he must have known, well, that can't make a lot of sense. I mean, I'm just a man of flesh and blood. I, you know, I coughed this morning. I nicked myself shaving. You know, he, he understood he was not a god. But they told him for 30 days, all the other gods' ears will be closed. No one can say anything to them. If at an intellectual level or a theological level he thought that through, does that make a lot of sense? Me? Really? Me? 30 days? He might have, he might have been dissuaded. But they weren't appealing to his reason. They weren't appealing to common sense. They weren't appealing to his theology, however bad it may have been. They appealed to his ego. And he liked it. He liked the sound of that. For 30 days, Darius would muscle aside any other god. If you're Darius, your ego liked this idea, regardless how silly or self-serving it may have been. So whatever the consequences may have been, Darius didn't think a moment for them. After all, he was thronged around the room by all the, the local guys. They told him it was a great idea. They said, oh, king, live forever. His ego you know, kept going and going, and then he signs it. He signs it right away. And the moment the ink dried, the advisors knew, we got it. And by him, I mean Daniel. We got it. They were by high-fiving in the hallways, talking about what, what a grand plan they had enacted because they knew this, that once the king had signed the declaration, there was no turning back. Once things dried on the papyrus or the parchment, that was it and that was all because the laws of the Medes and Persians said you can't alter. Even the king's decree cannot be changed, cannot be altered. But that said, let's look. Let's look what happens next, verses 10 through 15. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. Now, what do you think he did? Did he go in, he closed the doors, closed the blinds, kind of hunker down, think to himself, well, phooey, for 30 days i got to kind of lay low and kind of keep my religious observance on low boil here. Is that what he did? No, not in the least. When Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day. Not once, not twice, but thrice. Multiple times that day. This was his custom. He prayed. He gave thanks before his God. Then these men assembled, and they found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king. I bet they ran. They, they took the fastest guys among them. They ran, went to the king, and spoke concerning the king's decree, and said this, Have not, have not you signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or any man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered, and he probably realized maybe for the first time that he was being set up here, they came back really quick. I mean, he barely signed the thing, and already they're back, and they're asking him, do you remember what you signed? Do you remember? And in his mind's eye, is thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah? What, the, what are we talking about this? So have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you shall be cast into the den of lions? The king said, this is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. 
And so they answered and said before the king, Daniel, Daniel, who is of the captives from Judah, has not showed due regard for you, O king, or for the decree which you have signed. But he makes his petition three times a day. Now the king, interestingly, the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. I'll stop there just for a moment. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, when he heard that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to the golden statue he'd made, he became furious, right? His face contorted. He was angry. Darius is angry, but you know what? He's angry with himself because he sees what happened. He let them get to him by appealing to his ego. Now he understands the trap. He's no idiot. He understands that they didn't like Daniel, and he knows what's happened, that they found a way using him and the, the pen, which in this case truly was mightier than the sword, to utilize their laws to eliminate their main rival, a guy that he really liked, a guy that was beneficial to his kingdom. And so what we see here is that when the king heard these words, verse 14, he was greatly displeased with himself, and he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. you got to think the king, he pulled up his robes and so forth, set aside his crown for a bit. He ran off there and, and got out the, the royal library and started going through the books and tried to find, is there a loophole? Is there some means by which we can save Daniel? So the king, when he heard these words, he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. He labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. And then, supposedly with the sun down, or apparently with the sun down at this point, these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. They're saying, you have no options here. You know, when nations have cracked down on religious observance, when nations have cracked down on religious observance, when nations have cracked down on Christianity, for that matter, they know on some level, they know that on some level you can't eliminate it altogether. They understand that there's always going to be some house churches, there's always going to be people in their prayer closets with the windows closed and the like. When they crack down on it, they understand that, uh, that they may not get rid of every last vestige of the faith. It's impossible to, to eliminate the prayers going on in someone's head and the like. So what they settle for, at least historically speaking, what they settle for is the elimination of public profession, the elimination of, of a public confession of one's faith, public observance. And cultures across the past several hundred years, cultures that have grown hostile to Christ, the first thing that happens with, with faith is that it's ridiculed. That's step one. If there is a concerted effort to deal with a faith, say Christianity in this case, if there's a concerted effort to deal with Christianity, to put it underfoot, the first thing that will happen is public ridicule. From the high and from the low, public ridicule is the first thing that will happen. And once it's been ridiculed sufficiently, once the majority opinion is against it, then it will be outlawed. Then there will be legislative action taken against perhaps individual doctrines, individual precepts, but ultimately against the whole thing. Historically, that's been the way that, that it's worked. And when that happens, historically, it leaves believers with just a couple options, a couple of choices. First of all, they, they can hide what they believe, close the windows, they can hide it or they can face the consequences and standing for what they believe to be true. In Daniel's case, there was no choice. There was no choice to be made. What we see is that he went home. He heard what they'd said. He went home, got back to his usual customary business of praising God. Windows open several times a day. He didn't cut back in the visibility or the quantity of what he was doing. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, he opened his windows, and he prayed to his God. And apparently the king's advisors were waiting for that very thing to happen, waiting for that very moment. They were running to the king to tell him what had happened. Now, 
don't misunderstand something important about Daniel here. Daniel was loyal to King Darius, and Darius knew it. Daniel was a stand-up guy, even in a pagan foreign culture, even being in exile. He was loyal to this king. Daniel was a stand-up guy, someone Darius could count upon. However, his loyalty to Darius did not transcend his loyalty to God, did not outweigh, did not outnumber his loyalty and his devotion to Jehovah, to Most High God. But again, that was the vulnerability. If he had a vulnerability, that was the vulnerability that the king's advisors were looking to exploit. Let's look at verses 16 and 17 to see how this exploitation will take root. Verse 16, so the king gave the command when they brought Daniel and they cast him into the den of lions. Darius has looked at his options. He's worked from dawn till dusk, so to speak. He's spent hours. He's slaved with us. He's thought about it. He's been concerned about this. But his own advisors have reminded him, you have no option here. So the king gave the command. They brought Daniel. They cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke and said to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, your God who you serve continually, he will deliver you. And then a stone, verse 17. A stone was brought and was laid on the mouth of the den. Think of the tomb of Christ. Think of a mighty stone rolled in front of it. There's no hope for the one within, is the idea, once that stone rolls forward. Well, it's the same is true here. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. All right, back when Darius first realized that he'd been played, he spent the rest of the day trying to find a loophole to exonerate Daniel. Verse 15, his advisors tell him there's not an option, O king. And so with reluctance here in verses 16 and 17, the king commands Daniel to be thrown into the lion's den. And yet, again, we have these encouraging words. Daniel, Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Now, what, what does that suggest about the king, about his perception of these things? Well, I think it suggests two things. First of all, he knew that Daniel was worthy of being delivered. Sometimes people go to the cross or to the grave and they deserve every inch of what they got. Capital punishment and the like. There's some folks who, who across the annals of history, you could argue, deserve to die. Well, Darius knew Daniel was not one of these guys. It suggests here this idea that he would be saved. It suggests that in Darius' eye that Daniel was worthy to be saved. Second of all, it suggests this, that Daniel's God was capable of doing so. Daniel's God is capable. Now, remember Nebuchadnezzar? Remember what he said to Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? It was the exact opposite. He said, who is the God who is capable of delivering you from my hand? Darius, we don't know a whole lot about him, but we know this much. His character at this point in history was softer. He doesn't tell Daniel that it's game over for him. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, I believe, Daniel, that you're worthy of being spared, and I know that your God is capable of doing it. Those are the last words Daniel heard, for the stone rolled shut across the tomb, the den, and all there was was darkness. We don't have a great picture of what happened the moment since. But if you're Daniel, you looked around. I don't know how much light, if any light, there was. You looked around. You heard the sounds. You heard the beasts. And it wasn't one. It wasn't two. It would have been a multitude, as we'll see here in a moment. You knew that apart from help on high, that you were finished. That's like verses 18 through 23 to see what happens next. Now the king went to his palace and he spent the night fasting and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. He really is genuinely concerned about Daniel here. Then the king rose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, that's the second time that observation has come up, who you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions. 
Now, I don't know if there was a pregnant pause or a quiet filled the air or what happened or how long that, that question, Daniel, did you make it, hung in the air. But in verse 21, we hear this. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. My God sent his angel and he shut the lion's mouth so they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, king, I've done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him. He commanded that they should take up Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den. No injury was found on him because he believed in his God. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. Not an injury, not a wound, not a scratch that has been laid upon him. Now, in Darius' previous experience, he'd done this before. People have been thrown to lion's dens before. This was not new. And in Darius' previous experiences, whenever he'd thrown anyone to lions or had anyone cast in lions, this is what happened. They died. There was a one-to-one correlation of people thrown to lions and deaths. That was typically what had happened. Now, these lions, to give us a little context about these lions, some people wonder, were these like some sort of arthritic, lazy-eyed, three-pawed lions kind of squirming around the floor of the den? No, these were ferocious lions. These were man-eater lions, and they had been starved, and they were ready, ready to pounce, ready to bite. And the proof of how ready they were is that in a few verses from now, a whole bunch of other people are going to be throwing lines in before they even hit the floor. They're going to be dead. That's how fierce and that's how numerous these lines were. And yet Daniel went into the same place. Not a scratch. Not a scratch was laid upon him. Verse 20, the king ran to the lion's den. The stone was rolled away. This all has gospel implications. There's more to this than we have time to look at this morning, but all this has gospel implications, as does every aspect of Scripture. So the stone is rolled away. In verse 22, Dan responds, and he says that the lion's mouths have been shut and had not hurt him. Again, how, how can this be? Well, the short answer is this, because God intervened. God was with him. Daniel was in the valley of the shadow of death, as, as near and clear as that could be. God sent an angel. The angel had the power to shut the lion's mouths. You know, God loves to do that. When our backs are against the wall, he loves to deliver us. When our backs are against the wall, he loves to validate our faith against the backdrop of the impossible. That's just something God likes to do, and he's done it multiple times. Just in this one book alone, he's done it in a lion's den, and he's done it with a fiery furnace. God loves to take his people against the backdrop of something that they know they can't handle on their own, and to validate their faith, to answer their prayers, and to redeem them. The captain of their salvation is not toothless. He loves to come to the scene, to come to the fro and to rescue his own. From lion's dens to fiery furnaces to to red seas that part to Goliaths that fall, God loves to intervene just when you think he can't or he won't. No circumstance in your life, nothing you will ever face. God forbid it should ever be as stark as what Daniel faced here. But whatever the case is, however stark it may be, there's nothing that God cannot rescue you from. If it is according to his sovereign will, his plan and his glory. Why Daniel? The easy answer is that, well, it was his faith. He was saved by faith. Now, that answer is legitimate. It's not wrong. But I do need to to make note of something. There's been other faithful Christians that have perished in similar circumstances. Foxes, Book of Martyrs. There's many who who have been eaten by lions who had faith as Daniel. Why Daniel? Sometimes the short answer is God only knows. But we do know this. It sent a message to the exiles in Babylon. It sent a message to the exiles in Babylon. If you were living in Babylon at the time, if you were an exile, and you'd been there for decades, as Daniel had. Again, he's an old guy. He's 90 years old. When Daniel came out of that den, when he survived the unsurvivable, if you were an exile, you stood up tall that day because you knew that there's a God in Zion. 
He knew that a God who had made promises of preservation, who had made covenants with his people, that God was still capable, still able. And the proof that God's prophet Daniel had been spared was indicative of God's promise to redeem, to restore the whole of his people. And very shortly after, that's exactly what would happen. Because you know which king would, would sign a decree to send the people home? It would be Cyrus. Their redemption drew near. I believe Daniel was, was spared in this case, in, in part due to his faithfulness, but largely because of the message that sent, the message that sent to the exiles who were looking for hope. God had not forgotten his people. Okay, let's look at our final verses and we'll wrap up. Verses 24 through 28. Then the king gave the command and they brought the men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. Them and their children and their wives and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones and pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. And remember, his decrees couldn't change, right? So I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. He is not a statue. There's no gold head and, and silver chest and the like, no bronze. His kingdom shall never be toppled. He is the living God. He's steadfast forever. His kingdom is one, shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers. He rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. He has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so then Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You know, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, as we said before, they were stern. They were tough. They were strident. If you broke the law, then your whole family could be made to pay for it. Whether you like it or agree with it or not, that was the case in this day. And that's what we see in verse 24. The, the accusers and their families, their friends, their friends' dogs, basically anyone who was related to these whatsoever was thrown into the den, was thrown to the lions. They were dead before they hit the ground. As we said before, these lions, they, they knew how to do their business. They knew how to take care of anything that was thrown in. For better or worse, those folks had no one to intervene for them. For better or worse, those folks had no intercessor. There was no angel for them. When these fallen individuals came before a, a pack of lions with no intercessor, they died. What would it be like to stand before a holy God without the paraclete, without an intercessor, without the angel of the Lord, the captain of our salvation, to intervene? It would be far worse than to stand before a pack of lions, I can assure you. Apart from Christ, all of us, as we said at the outset, we're, we're all living in a lion's den. Acknowledge it or not, it is the case. There really is a lion outside these doors. He really does stalk to and fro, looking to devour those that he can. The whole world is a giant lion's den. And if you're being honest and introspective enough, you carry on your back now the spiritual scars that he has laid upon you. However, there's still hope even for the most scarred among us. There's still hope. As Darius said at the close of chapter 6, there still is a God. No matter how dangerous the lions are, no matter how dark the circumstances may be, no matter how high the Red Sea may rise, there still is a God in Zion. There's a God who delivers and rescues, who works signs and wonders. Whatever we face, whether it's today, tomorrow, or on into the future, it's no different. We serve a God who delivers and rescues. We serve a God who delivers and rescues, a God who makes promises, a God who keeps promises. That will not change no matter what circumstances we face, no matter how loudly the lion may roar. Let's pray. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word. If today's sermon's been helpful or encouraging for you, then check back tomorrow for another study of God's Word.